0: Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews nine verses sixteen through twenty-two. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, dear God, we do thank you for this passage this morning, as you've been building up to show us the more and more of the nature of the death of your Son, of the death of Jesus Christ, who it's amazing enough that the Son of God should die, and that he should die for such a purpose as this, for the ratification of a covenant that brings mercy to many who do not deserve it. We pray to your Lord that we would understand these things, that we would see the beauty and the glory of what you have done, that we would understand how all these things, they flow forth with great meaning, with great purpose, and that by it you demonstrate your glory and your greatness and your mercy which you have extended. We pray to our Lord that we would see these things, that we would understand, and that we would do your will. Amen.
1: So as we continue in Hebrews chapter 9, we come to a place where a word all of a sudden gets translated differently. Since chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews had been making the argument that the first covenant, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, that it was seriously lacking, not for what it was intended to do. God gave it as a covenant, and it was the perfect covenant for what God intended. It was intended to demonstrate everyone's guilt, and it perfectly satisfied that. It did that quite well as a, as a letter of co- condemnation that was written in stone, like it says in 2 Corinthians 3. So what it was lacking was the ability to resolve the problem that needed to be resolved. Not the problem of guilt. It was very good at declaring the guilt. What it couldn't do is clear the guilty. The first covenant had no ability, except in a very temporal sense, like when you make your, your trespass offering that God says it atoned for that sin, but it's not permanent salvation. It's not... It's just having that sin forgiven, not actually being restored into fellowship with God. The first covenant had no ability to restore fellowship with God. So a new covenant was needed, as his argument that he makes in Hebrews 7, 20 through 22. And inasmuch he was not made priest without an oath, for we know that, that they have become priests without an oath. But he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus had become surety of a better covenant. The old covenant, the first covenant, proved that a better covenant was needed. And so Christ came as a high priest on the order of Melchizedek to prove that a better covenant was needed so that he could be surety of a better covenant. So then the writer of Hebrew keeps making the argument about the need for a better covenant, and he quotes from Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So God makes it very clear that the old covenant could only bring guilt, and so he needed a new covenant, a better covenant, a a covenant that he would make with the house of Israel, where he says, I'll be merciful and I'll remove their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. The first covenant makes the sins and lawless deeds obvious. And obvious that you need something else. The second covenant cleanses them. The second covenant provides atonement. And it does that not just by saying your sins are forgiven. It does that by writing the law on the hearts and minds. Everyone who's part of the house of Israel will know the Lord. You won't have to say to those who are the house of Israel, know the Lord, for they will all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. All these things that the first covenant did not do at all. The second covenant comes and fixes the problem. It creates a people that will desire to keep the law of God. It creates a people who God can look at and say, you have been cleansed, you have been changed, you have been been made righteous through the power of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, where God took a heart of stone and gave a heart of flesh so that now instead of seeing the condemnation of the law that was in the first covenant, you see the glory of the law through the work of the Holy Spirit on your heart. And then last week's passage explained in Hebrews 9.15, And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of their transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because Christ offered his own blood and not the blood of bulls and goats. Like under the first covenant. It was a better sacrifice. It was by the death of the one who entered into the covenant that that is how that covenant was sealed. Yes, it required the blood of bulls and goats like the new coven- like the first covenant. But the new covenant, excuse me, it required blood, like the blood of bulls and goats under the old covenant, but better blood, the blood of the of the mediator under the new covenant. But it also had a better promise, a promise of an eternal inheritance. The old covenant had no promise of eternal inheritance. It had promise of a temporal inheritance. It had a promise of of that they would live long in the land of Israel, in the promised land. It was all temporal. It was all it was all about physical things. But Christ comes to establish a better covenant, with better promises, because he's a better mediator. So then we come to this passage, and all of a sudden in this passage, the language switches. It says, where there is a testament, well in Greek, that's the same word. This isn't that there was a change in word. This is a change in translation. The whole way through, this is the same word, which means covenant, diatheke. But now in verse 16, the word gets translated differently, and in the King James, they actually started translating it differently as far back as Hebrews 7, where it starts to get translated testament. But it's still the same Greek word, it's still the word for Covenant. But logically, something different is required because not all covenants require the death of the one who entered into it. Most covenants, when you enter into the covenant, when you enter into your marriage covenant, you don't have to die to enter into your marriage covenant. Not all covenants require death. But the new covenant requires death. The only one that, covenant that we talk about that requires death is your last will and testament. Your will does not go into effect. It does not have any power. It cannot change anything until you die. And so the writer is making the point that Christ's covenant was not just like any covenant. The covenant with Moses, the covenant with Adam, those covenants are like a lot of covenants we enter into. But not the covenant like that Christ entered into. The covenant Christ entered into is a very specific kind of covenant that we give a different word to. That we call it the last will and testament. That's the New Testament. And so the writer of Hebrews is going, understand the New Covenant is not like other covenants. It's not like the covenant where bulls and goats die. It's the covenant where the person who entered into it must die. It's like a last will and testament. And so he died. That's what it says in verse 15. It says, You return, receive an eternal inheritance. And now he's going, Pay attention. This is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. And we think about it and we, we read that word like the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's not a different word. Testament means covenant. And so when you think about it, you should think about the, that everything up from, from Genesis to Malachi was about describing the first covenant. From the death of Adam to, to the circumcision to all these things, they're pointing to the need for the new covenant the need for the New Testament, but what they're really doing is declaring the old covenant. From Adam, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that covenant of works, that if he did that work, that he would surely die, to through Abraham, through David, through Noah, through all these things, you have, have all these things that are declaring the first covenant. Then you have what happens to Israel, which is a declaration of the the first covenant. You have you have all the all the prophets, all the prophets are saying, Because you broke the covenant, the first covenant that was made with Israel, because you broke that, you were going to suffer this way. Because Egypt broke it, it's going to suffer this way. That's what all the prophets do. They're all declaring the results of the covenant of work. That's the Old Testament. Now, in there, there's all kinds of hints that point to there has to be a better covenant. There has to be a new covenant. There's still the possibility of wash yourself, make yourself clean, and your sins, though they're like scarlet, they can be made white as wool. But the focus of the Old Testament is declaring the first covenant. That's what it's about. In the New Testament, that we call the New Testament, but we could call it the New Covenant, too. It's about declaring the better covenant. It's about declaring what Christ did. It's about declaring the spiritual covenant that has the power to forgive sins. It was not true in the old covenant. And so when we think about that, when we think of the new covenant, don't just think of the new covenant, think of the New Testament. When you think of the first covenant that it refers to here, don't just think of, of the covenant in Exodus 24. You should think of the Old Testament. That's what these are. That's what those words mean. That's what they come from. That's why we call them that. And it's easy to forget that and, and not understand that that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Here's the first covenant, the Old Testament. Here's the new covenant, the New Testament. And that's what those things are describing. And so here, using the same Greek word, he's making the, the point that here was a covenant that was made... But it's not just any covenant. It's the last will and testament. It's the last will of God. So with that, let's go into the the verses 16 through 18. For where there is a testament, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So where there's a testament, so the writer is making a specific difference between a general covenant and a will. Because he's already stated the case about why the new covenant was a picture of the will of a will rather than the picture of any covenant. But he's actually going back to the specific language of Hebrews 8:10. Hebrews 8.10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That word translated make, when it's translated make in English, it's not carrying nearly the meaning of the word. The word there make is the same word as testator. So so he's already said he has to be entering into a will because that new covenant is the will. And I checked the Septuagint because I kind of know Greek. And the Septuagint, the translation in Jeremiah 31, 31, it's very specifically talking about entering into a will. Reading the Hebrew, I can't get that from the Hebrew, but I don't know Hebrew, so it might be there and I just don't get it. But I can tell you the Septuagint was translated a couple hundred years before Christ. And the the rabbis that translated it, they got it because they translated it the same way that it's quoted in Hebrews. That now the writer of Hebrews is making this whole case based on that. That when he says in Jeremiah 31, 31, the promise of the new covenant, he says, I will make a new, I will make a will. I will make a uh, last will and testament. That's the promise. And this is what will happen. When I die, the law will be written on your hearts and your minds. You will no longer say to your neighbor, know the Lord, for as everybody in the house of Israel will know the Lord. That's the promise he's making in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, at least according to the Septuagint. So that's how the Jews understood the promise that he was making. So that's really important to understand. So, so the writer of Hebrews isn't bringing this subject up as a new subject. he's actually handling the details of the word in Jeremiah, or excuse me, in Hebrews 8:10, from Jeremiah 31:31. So when you, So when you consider it, he's not really changing subjects, he's actually dealing with it in more detail. So you look at the King James and the King James has been translating a testament because even though diatheke means covenant, you know that it had to be a testament because the word testator and testament in English are very tied together. In Greek, they're not tied together. The one means covenant and the other one means to, to basically enter into a will. And so as we, as we look at that, it's important to recognize what's happening here. That the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's a better covenant. It's a more significant covenant. It's the last will and testament of God. It's not like the other covenants that he entered into. Because he entered into a lot of covenants before. But this one's, the done, this one's done. This one's finished. So since it is a will, that means that there are certain things that we should be able to, that we have to understand about it. And the first is there must of necessity be the death of the testator. A will doesn't mean anything until the person who made the will dies. Because it's not really a covenant that was entered into until they die. God had promised in Jeremiah 31:31 that he would enter into a testament, a new a will the required death, that he would be the testator, that he had to die. And so that means this is a much more significant covenant than any of the covenants that came before. Because the covenants that came before, they were about the blood of bulls and goats. But this covenant, this is the last one because he died. All the other ones were not about the person entering it into, into it dying. But when it's a testament, when it's this specific kind of covenant, it requires, it is of necessity, there has to be the death of the testator. And again, this word translated be, right, be the death of the testator, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. That's not like, like the word to exist, which is what be usually means, right, is our it's, it's about existence. That's not the word here. The word here is pharaoh. The word pharaoh is where we get the idea of a fairy, right? A fairy carries stuff from one side to another. And so the word, of, the word here that's translated be really means to carry. And so the covenant carries with it of necessity. It carries with it the death of the testator. For that covenant to have power, the testator must die. The person who entered into it must die. And here's where in my notes, where I was trying to remember, my notes say the word translated testator, right? It, it literally means the one to dispose. So covenant, diatheke, means more like cut a deal, right? It comes from the word to cut. The word that's translated um, testator. It doesn't mean to cut, it means to dispose of, like you dispose of your goods at the end of your life, right? That's your last will and testament. So in English, they're tied together. Testament, testator, in Greek, they have two totally different meanings. But the one who's disposing his stuff, it requires his death for the, testa, the covenant about how he'll dispose of his things when he dies for that to have any power at all, for that to have any effect at all. So it usually means one who disposes. It more literally means one who disposes. For instance, it's used twice in Luke twenty-two, twenty-nine. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one upon me. God bestowed it on somebody, or on Christ, and Christ is bestowing it on his people. That's what that word that's translated testator means. So it's about disposing your goods. So it's about entering into a will. So because that's what he said, he said, here's what I will, how I will dispose of things. Here's how I will, will, this is what my last will and testament will be, is what he said in Jeremiah 31.31. Then 31. he quotes it in Hebrews 8.10, and then here he's going, okay, so now what's the results of that? What's the effect of that? And the first is that he had to die. So he's pointing to things that we know. <coughs> That we understand. But now he's taking it, he's putting a spiritual significance on it. People understand that a last will and testament, the reason it's called the last will and testament is you can't change it. Once you die, it's done. It can't be changed. Somebody can write a will, and they can change it, and they can change it, and they can change it. As long as they're alive, they can change it as many times as they want. Because it has no power, it has no effect. It's when they die that it has power and it has effect. So it requires the death of the testator for it to actually have any effect, actually has any, any strength, any power. So we all understand this when we think about it. We all know that somebody can be, you know, they can enter into a will that they're going to give their, their children equal portions and then one of their sons can sleep with their concubines to go back to Jacob. And all of a sudden you go, he's not getting any inheritance, and you can change your will. It's not your last will and testament until you die. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, understand what this means. Because the new covenant is Christ, is God's last will and testament, it means there can't be any more covenants. Right? Now, he's still God, he still rose from the dead, he's still living, he could still make covenants, but he ordered the world so that we could understand that because it is his last will and testament, even though he's alive, he won't enter into another one. Because when we make our last will and testament and we die, and we, we put that covenant into effect, at that point in time, we can never change it because we're dead. God ordered that to work that way so that we can understand that when Christ died, that he cannot change it. There won't be another covenant. The new covenant is the last one. It doesn't need to bind Christ that way, but God God is declaring that he is bound that way by saying that it is his testament. So he's pointing out that what Christ was entering into when he suffered on the cross, when he entered into the new covenant, as it was said in chapter 8, that this is what he was going to dispose of his, his power. This is how he was going to dispose of his inheritance. He was going to write the law on the hearts and the minds of his people. And so it cannot change going forward. For a testament is enforced. Other covenants are enforced Immediately. When you get married and enter into a marriage covenant, it's enforced immediately. But you write a will, and it has no force, it has no meaning until you die. A will has no power to affect the world until the person who made it die. Because before that, it can be changed at the whim of the person who wrote it. And So the word that translated force there really means no stability, no firmness. So the picture is more like you can't push against it to cause anything to happen. Because it's just like water. It just could flow anyway. It doesn't have any any substance that you can use to have it to cause it to have any effect in the world. Because again, it's that picture of your last will and testament, you can change it whenever you want until you die. So it's not really cut. It's not really entered into until the death of the person who did it. But after are died, once the man has died, then it will become in force. That's when it becomes unchangeable and firm. And again, obviously God's taking a physical picture that we understand in the world. And he's using it as a parable to point to spiritual truths. He's using this physical thing that we understand. You write a will, and maybe you write it again, and maybe you change it again, maybe you change it again. But then you die. And at that point in time, it is now in force, and it has real effect on the world. It has real effect on your heirs. It really means this is what the inheritance was. So he's saying you can trust this differently than you can trust the first covenant. The first covenant is you will go into the promised land. But then God drove them out of the promised land. Because in the end, that covenant required more, it was more than just a covenant made by God, it was also made by the Israelites, that they would do the works necessary to keep it. And they didn't do it. But the new covenant is not like that. It's like a will where you didn't have two parties. The person who receives the inheritance doesn't go, oh yeah, I I I talked to my father and I got put in his will and we agreed this is what I'd get. No, the will is he gets this. It is one-sided. Not like the first covenant that was two parties, which means that it has works involved in it. By inherently it has works involved in it if it's two parties. But this is like a testament. In a testament, a covenant like that, there are not two parties. When I die, this is where my resources go. And so that doesn't mean that God changed his covenants, because nothing surprises God. But he uses it, but if we look back, we can think that the covenants changed, right? Physical Israel were the people of God. Now spiritual Israel are the people of God. It looks like it changed, but that was always God's plan. That's what... Paul, the argument Paul makes in Romans 9, 3 through 6. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen." But it is not the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. His whole point is you look at all those covenants and they look like they changed, but none of them really changed. Just look like the wrong people were in covenant, then were actually in covenant. And that's the argument that he makes. So it's not that God entered into a covenant and broke the covenant because he knew who he was entering into it. But the Israelites, they thought they were entering into it. But it was just Caleb and Joshua and Moses that were entering into it. The rest of them didn't enter into it, even though it looked like they did. Because that covenant that they would be made right with God, or that they, that they were in covenant with God, those promises that they received, those were received only by those who had faith. So it looks like it changed, but it didn't change. It was always God's plan. But that's not true of the New Covenant. The New Covenant will never appear to change. He has said, this is how I'm disposing of things. This is, this is how I'm giving eternal life. This is how I'm giving it an eternal inheritance. This is it. It's not, never going to change. This is my last will and testament. <clears throat> it's not just another covenant that has no firmness, that, does it, that appears to change. And since it has no power at all, a will is changeable, so it cannot have power until it's proven to be the last. Until the only way that you can prove this is the last will somebody will ever write is for them to die. And so he's saying, understand, that will means nothing, right? It's a piece of paper, but it means nothing until the person dies and says, now it goes into a force, because that covenant, that cutting, that happens when the person dies. So a covenant, the new covenant could have no ability to do anything. It couldn't move anything. It couldn't make any difference while the testator lived. So when God said in Jeremiah 31, 31, after those days he would make a new covenant with the house of Israel, this is him writing a will. And then the will goes into effect when he dies. He declared, this is what I'm going to do, but that doesn't actually happen until he dies. So it could have no power, even though God said it It had no ability to make any effect at all until, in any way until it was finally entered into when Christ died. Therefore, so now he's going to explain some of the types and shadows that were in the first covenant because they pointed to the final covenant, the new covenant. So not even the first covenant, the reason he's saying therefore, the reason that this is true The reason that the first covenant was sealed with blood was to point to the fact that there would be a new covenant where Christ's blood was shed. So not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And understand, this is the first covenant, the covenant of works, if you will. It's this picture that's the picture of the Old Testament, right? The whole Old Testament. It includes Adam and the shedding of blood that Christ had to kill he had to, to kill animals to close them, clothe them. The first time that any animals died, it was the picture for him to, for them to, to go out and not immediately die. Something else had to die. It's from the Abrahamic covenant where, they, where Abraham kills all the animals and splits them over and God passes between them. It's from the covenant of circumcision, right? Circumcision, what does that require? Shedding of blood. When you're circumcised, you bleed. It's showing that the setting shedding of blood was what was required for sin to be constrained. All these covenants that God entered into, they're all covenants that uh, no, it's the Noahic covenant. The whole world died except for eight people without the shedding of blood. God did this. All of that shedding of blood, all of that those things that had to die so that people could understand. Look at the priesthood of When we go back, we'll go go to the establishment of Aaron as the high priest and all the animals that had to die for him to be established as the high priest, (coughs) for the Levitical priesthood to be covenantally established. And all that, all that was pointing to, to have a covenant that's actually effectual, spiritually effectual, it requires the blood of the testator, the one who entered into the covenant to die. So not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. He's going to talk about specifically when they entered in in Exodus 24, when the nation of Israel did. We shouldn't just think that that's the only time that a covenant was entered into. But that's who the writer of Hebrews is writing to. And so he's showing that it had no power to save. It had no power. All it could do, the blood of bulls and goats, all it could do was point to better blood was required. Verses 19 and 20. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. So this is, you know, for when, so it's referring to a specific point in time, and the specific point in time is Exodus 24, so I wanted to read the first part of Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. So when Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So when we read Hebrews 19 and 20, there's actually more detail in there than there is in Exodus 24. Now it starts with what we do know. He read all the words of the law. So Moses had spoken every precept to enter into the covenant Moses first read the terms of the covenant, basically, right? Before you enter into, now, a will doesn't get read until the death of the testator. That's where you get, okay, here's what the will is. Here's the disposition of the assets of the person. But when you look at this covenant, that's not how it was. Before you enter into the covenant, if you're going to sign a contract, the first thing you do is read the contract. And so the first thing Moses did was he spoke every precept. He, he declared everything that was in Exodus 20 through 23. Because will doesn't have any force until the death of the testator, but that's not true for other covenants. They have force when they're entered into. So the people are subjected to its term. And so he read through them so that they would understand this is the things that you're agreeing through to so he basically, yeah, you know, that's basically Exodus twenty, which starts with the Ten Commandments, and then some fleshing out of what those commandments look like. And it's very detailed fleshing out, which actually points to the fact that this isn't all they're really they're they're swearing to uphold the Ten Commandments. And those examples are giving examples of how to rightly understand the Ten Commandments. And so it's important to understand that they thought we can get away with just this specific set of statutes. But that's, they had to keep the precepts. They had to keep not just the statutes, but the ideas. Because there is a different word that's, that's used, and it's translated precepts here. It could be translated commandments. But the idea is that it's... Um, that the commandments were broad and they weren't detailed, which is why I translated to pre- precepts. Yes, there are detailed commandments. If this happens, uh, if you buy a, a slave woman for your for your son, and then you decide not to marry her to your son, you have to let her go free, and not you know that's one of the laws, and not sell her. Well, that's very detailed, but the point is, is that there's principles there. And they were swearing to uphold the principles and not just the details, not just the statutes. So we need to make sure that when we think about it, we're thinking about the precepts and not just the statutes, not just the details of the laws that were commanded. Or we become like the rich young man in Matthew 19, 20 and 21. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That's the principle that they were to do. They weren't just supposed to say, I've never stole from anybody. And God goes, no, actually you have. You have a duty to the poor. I was hungry and you didn't feed me, therefore you get condemned. So Moses was not just saying, keep these specific things and you'll be fine. He's saying you have to keep the fullness of the Ten Commandments. So when he restates it, when they re-enter in, because there's multiple times where they restate it. They restate this first covenant. And the nation of Israel, like on the Mount Ebal and the Mount Gerizim, where they split the two tribes, I mean, they're restating this first covenant. That's not a new covenant. That's re-entering into the same covenant, but the words are very different. than they are when they enter in in Exodus 24. They're very different when they establish the tabernacle. But all these things are are still establishments of the first covenant. So the precepts, these are prescriptions without all the details filled in. So that's why Christ could say with authority, like in for instance in Matthew 5:21 and 22, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, you shall be, in da- shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. I mean, Jesus Christ is saying, look, you think that all you have to do is meet that letter. And what I'm telling you as the judge, that's not the right way to read it. That's not what they entered into. That's not what the nation of Israel entered into. God is, Christ is not being unjust by saying, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty. He's saying, that's the precept that was there when you said, do not murder. That judgment was included implicitly in the precepts that Moses read. And Christ is saying, you've changed what you swore to, this is how you were to understand it. So Moses read the precepts to all the people. All the people were to understand, and not just those specific statutes, but the broader principles of the law. They understood this was just a summary with case law for specific issues and not a detailed explanation of each commandment. So it was according to the law. And I think they're adding, yeah, the, the writer is adding this phrase is more showing the weakness of the covenant because covenant didn't have any power to deliver anyone from sin. All it had the power to do was to declare the judgment, to declare the judgment that was coming. It had no power to cause anyone to keep the commandments. It just had a declaration of the commandments, which they swore to keep. And so they become guilty because they didn't keep them. So then he took the blood of calves and goats. And it actually doesn't say that in Exodus 24. Exodus 24, it just says he offered burnt offering and peace offerings of oxen. But I think it's fair to say, given by God, obviously, but also not contrary to Moses' reason, that Moses had understood enough to go, wait a second, the Passover is a picture of being delivered. So therefore, when I enter into this covenant, the Passover required lambs to be killed of either the sheep or the goats. So as I come here, I should be offering burnt offerings of goats. I think Moses got a lot more than he wrote and recorded because the writer of Hebrews, through the inspiration of God, is saying this is what he did, even though we don't have record of it, because the writer of Hebrews is going understand that what was being done there was a picture of Christ, and it was pointing to Christ. It was pointing to Christ being the Passover lamb that had to die, and so therefore, it wasn't just oxen that were sacrificed. So even though it's not recorded in Exodus, the Holy Spirit is showing the writer of Hebrews, this is what Moses actually did. And that's because when Moses was recording it, he wasn't going, well, this, this points to the new covenant. Moses did this going, well, this is the sacrifice that's needed. So they would have used lambs since they just had used lambs 50 days before, or not even 50, no, 10 days before, something like that. They had used lambs to sacrifice to have freedom. So Moses goes, we should sacrifice goats in addition to the oxen. And they took the blood of both, which again, we know that from Exodus 24, but then it says with water. In Exodus 24, there's no record of him mixing the blood with water. It says he took half the blood and put it on the altar, and half the blood he sprinkled the people. But we find from, the, from Hebrews that it was actually pointing to something else, and so it wasn't just blood. It was blood mixed with water. John 19, 33 and 34 is pointing to the death of Christ. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And so when the new covenant is established, the new covenant is established not just with blood, but with blood and water. So Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, When I sprinkle the people in the first covenant, because it's pointing to the need for a better covenant, they'll be sprinkled with blood and water. So when Moses put the blood in the basin to sprinkle it on the people... He, if you have a bunch of people that you're supposed to sprinkle, you add water to make the blood go further. So it could have been pure pragmatism on his part, but on God's part, it was being done so that people could tie it to the death of Christ because it was pointing to the death of Christ. You know, there's, other, there's other places in the law like in the cleansing of the leper, where you take one bird and you cut its neck and you let the blood flow with running water and then you sprinkle them with that. There's other places where people are cleansed with blood and water. So it's not alone in there. It's the the picture of substitutionary atonement has blood and water in there. But Moses, Moses in Exodus 24 doesn't relate it, but that's what Moses did when the house of Israel entered into that covenant. And then scarlet wool. Again, this is not recorded in Exodus. And we can get the picture from other places of blood mixed with running water because there are multiple places in the Old Testament that give us that picture of blood and water being sprinkled with. That's not true with scarlet wool. There's nothing that talks about that. So we don't have any explicit description. We don't have any picture that we know what it is. Now, I think that it's probably the right interpretation is it's the picture of something pure becoming impure, so scarlet wool, when wool starts, it's white. And then if they dyed it, they would dye it red. So I think what's the picture here is the opposite of Isaiah 1. He, he, and remember, this is Moses doing it. 1,400 years or so before Christ, Moses is adding scarlet wool to this water that he's going to sprinkle to seal this covenant. Isaiah 1.18, "'Come now and let us reason together,' says the Lord. "'Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow.'" Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Christ was white. He was pure. There was nothing in him. There was no sin in him. There was no violation of the first covenant in any way, shape, or form. But yet he became red so that we could become white. That's the picture that I think is here. Here. And God had Moses do this, where maybe Moses understood, maybe Moses didn't understand. We don't know because it's not even recorded by Moses. So obviously he didn't see the significant, but God, significance. But God is going. Understand, I had Moses do this so that you could understand that the first covenant needed to be replaced, even when it was established, it needed to be replaced. And hyssop. Again, we don't know just from Exodus twenty-four that he used hyssop. I mean, it's logical. That's what, that's what they used at Passover. And again, Passover was only like 10 days before. It's not like there's this huge gap. And they were told explicitly there, take hyssop and use it to paint the blood on the doorposts. So we don't know from Exodus 24 other than Moses sprinkled the people. But we know from this that he used hyssop to do it. And again, and it's really hard to understand what the picture of hyssop is because... It's not a Hebrew word. We don't know the root of it. We don't know the plant that we call hyssop now isn't necessarily hip- hyssop. Nobody really knows. It's a transliteration of a word from a language that we don't know. That's what hyssop is. But yet, so when you look at hyssop, you have to tie hyssop to Passover because that's all we have it to tie to. And so Moses understood this was tied to Passover. And so Moses used hyssop to sprinkle both the book itself. Again, not in the Exodus passage, but this is still significant. In the Exodus passage, he took half the blood and sprinkled it on the altar and half the blood he sprinkled on the people. This is what Moses saw through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit should be recorded. And the writer of Hebrews is going, no, he actually sprinkled it on the book as well. By his blood, he seals the law. He died for the law to have a positive effect. Before before Christ died, all the, all the law did was produce condemnation. That's all that it does. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. It was just a letter of condemnation. All they could see is their death. That's why they had Moses wear the veil. But in Christ, that completely changes. Where the law was this letter that was about destruction, about death, and about the judgment to come. All of a sudden it becomes, this is what God would have us to do. This is the good things. This is the good path that we're supposed to walk. And so Moses sprinkles the law with the blood. I mean, that's, that's writing the law on the heart and on the mind. That's the picture of Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, Because he changes the law from being about a law of condemnation to being about a law of sanctification and purification sprinkled the book itself and all the people saying So he's declaring the force of the law and declaring that they entered into the covenant with blood. He says this is the blood of the covenant. Because the blood was shed, the seriousness of the covenant was established. The covenant was entered into at that point. It didn't require the death of, of God to do it. It wasn't a last will and testament. It was just a covenant like other covenants not like the better covenant, which is the last will and testament of God. But all of it pointed to the need for death. If they broke it, they were liable for their own death. God told them what to do. And if they wanted to live, they had to do just like Adam did. He said, God said to them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they went and ate of the tree so that they died. In this case, he says, keep all my commandments and you'll live. And they said, yes, we'll do that. And then they immediately turned. And made a golden calf. This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. They were accepting the responsibility. They were acknowledging it was their responsibility through the peace offerings, through the burnt offerings, that they had the responsibility to do what God said, to obey His commandments. And that to be released from those commandments so that you didn't receive the judgment required a different sacrifice and the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Verses 20 and 22. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So then it reads then. When we read then, it sounds like it was immediately afterwards, but it wasn't immediately afterwards. Moses goes up. He's told all the things. He comes down, but confronts them about the golden calf, breaks the tablets, goes back up. They come down again, 40 days later again, and then they build, make all the tabernacles. So this is like 10 months later between the entering end of the two covenants. Or almost closer to a year, actually. So the, author, the point that the author is making that then when he does it, when he sprinkles the tabernacle, he's not making a different covenant. He's, he's establishing the same covenant It's all part of establishment of the same covenant. He was just testifying again that they were under that covenant. The covenant of judgment, not the covenant that can actually produce freedom. So then, likewise, he sprinkled with blood. In the same manner he did before, I think that it should be read that he mixed it with water, that he used the the scarlet wool, that he, he used the hyssop. He sprinkled the blood, pointing that This was just a type and shadow of something more important. This was just a type and shadow of the need for something that could actually sanctify the people, could actually free them from their bondage of sin and not just forgive them of a sin here and there. So he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a picture of being in the presence of God, drawing near to God, having relationship restored to God, and so they could approach that physical tabernacle because the blood was was sprinkled upon it. But it didn't mean that they could enter the true tabernacle. It didn't mean they could enter the spiritual tabernacle. The true place where God dwelt instead of just the type and the shadow. And all the vessels of the ministry, all the vessels had to be sanctified as well with the with the blood. They had to be made pure. Even these things that were that were made from the most precious things on the earth, the things made of gold and silver. They still had to be sprinkled with blood because they still had to be pure. It's pointing out there's nothing pure in this world. It's all been affected by sin. For it to be pure enough to enter into the presence of God, for it to be pure enough for for God to say this is worthy of worship, it required blood to be shed. For God to say this is acceptable, it had, to, it had to require blood to be shed because these are all just physical pictures of a spiritual reality that Christ's blood being shed, it's what sanctifies, it's what purifies, it's what makes it things acceptable to worship. That's why Christ said, you know, I've come so that people worship the Father in spirit and in truth. His blood was shed so that we can worship in a way that's pleasing to God without his blood we're not pure enough to worship God in a way that's pleasing to Him. And according to the law, those laws that we've been considering in the book of Leviticus, about all of the sacrifices for the atonement of sin, and some of those are for forgiveness of real trans- transgressions, they all required the shedding of blood for them to be atoning. Every time I looked, I'm pretty sure every time in the Old Testament that it talks about atonement was made for the sin it always ties it to the shedding of blood. It's always what's required for for the sin to actually be forgiven, for it to actually be removed off the people. They all require the shedding of blood because almost all things are purified with blood. Again, all the times that it talks about atoning, it, it requires the shedding of blood. But those are for real transgressions, right? You... You hear somebody took an oath, and then you see them violating their oath, and you do nothing about it. That's a real transgression that requires real shedding of blood for it to be forgiven. But it didn't always require the shedding of blood. If you went into a house that had leprosy, you just had to go. You became unclean, and you just went, and you washed, and you were unclean until evening. And so there were places that things weren't purified with blood. But when you look at real sin... That was purified with blood. When God says there's real atonement, where there's real forgiveness temporally, not eternity, eternally, because your heart hasn't changed. But that requires the shedding of blood. That's the picture over and over again as we've been going through Leviticus. And without the shedding of blood, because the wages of sin is death, all sin requires death not all ceremonial law not all ceremonial uncleanness requires death because that's just a picture of sin but all real sin requires death and that's what god shows in that picture of the all those bulls and all those calves and all those all those goats and all those sheep that were killed it's all about making sure you understand that the, without that shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin And none of that stuff could do anything except do it physically, in a ceremonial way. We need a greater sacrifice, a better sacrifice, a last will and testament of God in order for our sins, for us to have remission of sins. They shed blood so that that temporal sin could be forgiven. Christ came and he shed his blood. So not just our temporal sins could be forgiven, but we could be spiritually reconciled with God. We could have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. We could have the law written on our heart and on our mind. That's how God says I will dispose. That's how I will... That's, that's what my will is so that you receive an eternal inheritance. That word remission comes from freedom. All the stuff that they did all those sacrifices that they did in the physical tabernacle. None of them could cleanse the conscience, is what he said. What the writer of Hebrews always said. It can't fix the real problem. The real problem is you recognize you're still guilty before God. And you can kill as many bulls as you want. It won't fix the problem. To actually have freedom, freedom from the guilt of judgment, it requires the sacrifice of Christ. It requires his blood to be shed. Unless life goes away with life in the blood, there's no freedom from that sin. Let me give you a few applications. First application, the new covenant is not like the old covenant. The old covenant was changeable. God added things to it. God finally goes, I've had enough, you've committed adultery, this is like marriage, you know, you've committed adultery enough times, I'll put you away. He adds to it about David being the, you know, all these things that are pictures of what Christ is going to do. It was changeable. But that's not true of the New Covenant. The New Covenant was God's last will and testament. And it gives a whole other aspect of what Christ said in his last moments on the cross in John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Because it's finished more than just his life being finished. It's more than his work being finished. It's in his testament to man, his disposition of things to man. It was finished because the will went into effect when he said that. The new covenant was his last will and testament. So all the covenanting that God did with man before that, it's finished. He's not going to make any more covenants. There's lots of covenants in the Old Testament. There will be no more covenants that God makes with man because his last will and testament went into effect. So while dying on the cross, Christ took the kingdom and gave it to others, and he will never do that again. The bride will be the bride. He will cleanse the church. He won't go, I'm going to, yeah, Israel's the people of God, but now the church is the people of God. And now maybe Israel will be the people of God again, which is kind of what the dispensational eschatology says. It's finished. It's disposed of. He can't change things back. He's done. That's what it means, because it's his last will and testament, and it was sealed by his death. Another application. Our confession says this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. As we consider this passage, we can see how this is the full discovery. This is it. There can't be anything more. He entered into his last will and testament. It's done. He's not going to reveal more. It was sealed by the death of the testator. It had to be finished in terms of revelation. Another application, all the covenants through the Old Testament, they were associated with the shedding of blood as a physical parable to point to the need for the death of Christ. We shouldn't just think that the testimony was only given to Israel. When you think about it, people throughout the whole world because Cain tried to not shed blood, and God judged him for it and said his offering was unacceptable. People throughout the whole world knew that the shedding of blood was what was required for the remission of sin, because from the beginning, that's what it was like. That From the beginning, Noah understood that, Adam understood that, so it was past all their descendants... This is why human sacrifice is common throughout all the world. Because even though it was written down for Israel, every nation understood it. You go to the Aztecs, you go to the Mayans, and they were doing human sacrifices. You go to the Greeks, they were doing human sacrifices. Everybody understood. Everybody understood that the shedding of blood was required for the remission of sins. Human sacrifice has almost ceased to be explicitly religious. No one goes to an abortion clinic and say that they're murdering their baby as a religious act. They don't say they're doing it to worship their idol as they kill their child. But they still think it will take away the effects of their sin. They still believe it and they still practice it. But Christ has come and entered into the new covenant. So nobody, people stop using the language when they hear about Christ. But they still think that the shedding of blood, this is why we've had 60 million babies murdered, because they still think the shedding of blood will take away their sin. But the only blood that will take away sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. But all that killing, all those abortions that happened, don't separate them any more than we should separate the the bulls and goats that were slaughtered on the altar every day. We should look at that abortion clinic and understand this is people that are going, I recognize that I needed Christ because they're saying blood has to be shed for my sins to be taken care of. And they're not going to put in those many, that many words or that clearly, but this is what our society has pointed to. And this is what our society, the Society of Men, not America, has been pointing to for thousands of years. Because God put it in there so that people would understand. Blood needed to be shed so that you could have freedom. Freedom from your sin. Another application, understand the details of God's plan. Even when they're not all recorded. And I think this is really important to recognize. Because you know, John says at the end of the, of the Gospel of John, if everything that Christ did was recorded, it would fill the whole earth. And just understand that the writer of Hebrews is going, do you understand Moses used hyssop, right? You got that. Moses used water. Moses used these things. Because God's plan is much more intricately woven together than we can see. He just gives us little spots that we can see. But he had Moses know to use hyssop. He had Moses know to use scarlet wool. Because he wanted to point to Christ. He wanted to point to his death. God has woven things into creation that point to him that are far greater than we can ever understand or anticipate. God does things with greater depths and with greater complexity. They all tie together in ways that, that the human mind or finite mind can never comprehend. You know, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's important for us to recognize that because we can, you know, last week or the week before we were reading Job, and so much of Job, his friends, they sound right. But the problem is they're shallow. It might be right 99% of the time, but that other 1%, that makes all the difference between it being truth and error. And we just need to recognize that God has all the, all the bits down to the smallest detail. He has it woven together so that the translators that translate the Septuagint put in there the word for somebody entering it, writing a will about his disposition. Because that's what's required to make the argument in, in Hebrews 9. And so it's just important for us to recognize how much more complex, how much deeper God is doing things than we can recognize. We always just scratch the surface of what God is doing. And the last, oh no, I have two more applications, sorry. One applica- another application is everything in the world has been corrupted because of sin. It was not just man that required the shedding of the blood of Christ. Not just man was sprinkled. Not even just the tabernacle was sprinkled. Because the tabernacle is a picture of a spiritual tabernacle, right? That's what we'll talk about next week. But even the vessels, even the silver and gold had to be sprinkled. It had to be purified. Because everything, everything in this world was tainted by sin, even gold and even silver. And Christ had to come to deal with all of it because that's how far the curse affected And Jesus Christ came to undo the curse, even the effects of sin on gold. He came to undo. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the picture of the vessels having to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. It wasn't just physical things. Or excuse me, it wasn't just man. It was far more than man that needed to be cleansed by the blood of Christ and will be cleansed by the blood of Christ last application to have freedom from sin Christ had to die but so do we it's easy to think that that the death of the testator is enough but, but we have to join in that death if we want that death to have the effect of salvation of freedom from sin no we don't have to shed our blood but we must die to the judgment of the law By joining with Christ in His death, Galatians two nineteen through twenty one. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. That's the picture of the first covenant. Takes us to the point of recognizing our death, so that we recognize that we can have salvation through Christ. But we have to die to the law to do that, so that we can live to God. So I've been crucified with Christ. Christ's death isn't this abstract thing. You have to die with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will put the Spirit of Christ in you and write the law on your heart and on your mind. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. But because Christ died, because he sealed the New Testament, because he disposed of the Holy Spirit as an internal inheritance, we can die to ourselves and live for Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. We pray that the many things here that we understand how to apply them now, how to to see them in our own lives, how to, to look at them and see how we should be thinking about the world around us. Lord, we pray that you cleanse us. We pray that you make us more faithful servants. So We've been talking about that you became a priest on the order of Melchizedek, a better priesthood, and you, you make us, as your sons and daughters, priests. Lord, let us understand what that means, and let us understand how the blood of Jesus Christ, that the entering in of the New Testament, the entering in the death of the testator, that that gives power that was never there before because that power of the new covenant was not there. It had no power until the death of the testator, but now it has real power. Let us live and understand that power to overcome sin in our lives, power to walk in righteousness, and power to affect the people around us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.